Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Paul. This is Arbitrarily Deterministic on KeithFM.com. The show where we talk to the people who do some stuff with, I don't know, technology, art, and culture, and some other things. Basically, we find people who are doing cool shit and we try to talk to them. And today we have a pretty cool guy. It's called Zeneca. Zeneca is a here in the world of NFTs. <laughs> and he's a, a, a character who a lot of people follow and who listen to people who listen to him. He's done some pretty interesting stuff in his lifetime, and we're going to ask him about some of that stuff. Hi. Hello. <laughs> good to be here. Yeah, good. Glad to have you on. Hey, you know, real fast before we go any further, I do need to say one more thing than this, the disclaimer concerning NFTs. Oh, true. I have to say this stuff. I don't know why, but somebody told me I have to. And this is whenever we talk about NFTs and anything that has to do with the financial markets, none of it is financial advice. It's all purely for entertainment purposes. Anyway, hey, Roy, why do we have you on the show today? I mean, that's a good question. I probably because I'm into generative art and I like art and I like NFTs and I've been talking about NFTs and you wanted to invite me on to talk about NFTs and generative art. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough answer. That's part part of it. But probably not all of it. Yeah, probably not all of it. No. Why do you call yourself Zeneca? That goes back to, so when I was creating my Twitter account in march 2021 i i had an old twitter account but i thought let me start a new one that's you know where i just follow people about crypto and nfts because so much of the space um especially then but even now um the activity happens on twitter i said all right let me create a new account and sort of the thing to do everyone does is they create like a pseudonym and a screen name uh, a twitter username and so i looked around i basically just my desk at the time i was like all right i need some inspiration what can i come up with for a name and I had a, de- uh, a book by the Stoic philosopher Seneca on my desk, and I was like, "Okay, I mean, I'm I love Z- uh, Seneca. I get a lot of inspiration from him and his his words and writing. Uh, maybe there's something there. I didn't want to just copy straight away and use Seneca, but then I thought so- so- somehow in my head, like Seneca propped up, and uh, I think I'm a fan of like Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, and I think that there's something um, to that as well. And I think just the amalgamation of the two. Um, Came up with Zenic, and I was like, "Huh, that sounds pretty cool. I'm just, I'm gonna go with that." Fair enough. That's good. So you've read you've read a lot of Zeneca, Seneca. Uh, I have yes, uh, less more recently, but back in about twenty, I think it was twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen. I went through uh, just a period of reading a lot of philosophy, and my favorite philosopher out of everyone I read was uh, Seneca, and uh, read a lot of his writing and. Every now and then I'll, I'll either go back and reread some of his work or, you know, find a new book or new collection of his writings and uh, read through them. And uh, yeah, just, just a very big fan. Yeah, I read, I actually used to read a lot of philosophy books. Actually, Webovich and I mm. today were talking about mm-hmm. that. Um, and he, we were discussing like pragmatism and dogmatism and Arthur Franklin Stewart and blah. And anyway, and I brought up that, the only book I've read on philosophy in the last few years is a Seneca book. And I said, and it's interesting that I have Seneca on the show today. So it was one of those. <laughs> which, uh, which one did you read? I mean, it was the one about the, 
it's not his books. It's about him, and it's t- as the told through the translator situation. Do you know what I mean? I've read a bunch of stuff from him over years, but like this thing that I'm yeah, talking about. No, I'm, no, about I don't know exactly which one that is, but it sounds interesting. About how the translations are, um, how history is actually told. You know, it's through the translators. And yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the concept. Yeah. Yeah. And they use a lot of like the Seneca letters, um, Seneca letters as like how ver- they use those as various points throughout like, okay, at this guy, he re- translates this way. This other guy later on in history translated it like this. And these two things yeah. are maybe not the same concept conceptually. You know what I mean? So there was, it was really an interesting like book about how translations make things. But in any case, that, you know, I, I read. A lot of stoic stuff whenever I was in college back in the 90s. <laughs> so, yeah, and found some of it interesting and some of it not so. I kind of got really into um, modern-day philosophers a little bit later in life, like Shizek and these guys, but I've also given up on thinking about that kind of shit, too. But how did that... Did that? Did your... Um, did your learnings from Seneca, did those translate into how you approach your trading or your collecting or how? I think it, it, it impacted my worldview and how I think about everything in life. So as a consequence, yes, it, it has an effect on maybe not necessarily trading strategy or collecting strategy, but more about, um, I mean, just the, the core element or understanding or one of the core things with stoicism is just sort of, you know, understanding the difference between things that are in your control and things that are not in your control and concerning yourself as much as possible with the things that you that are in your control because that's all you have control over and the reality is that almost everything that happens in life is not in our control so when it comes to trading or you know the financial markets nfts crypto there's only so much you can do when it comes to making decisions that you think are a good smart wise whatever um and then the market is going to do what it's going to do and so uh, helping on sort of the emotional side of things or the, the mental side of things where, you know, maybe things don't go, things go poorly or they don't go so well, or as well as maybe I might've hoped, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was younger and, and hadn't really, um, you know, read stoic literature or like thought through this and come to sort of certain mental models, uh, I would have been a lot more affected about it and been like, you know, thrown into a a pit of despair or like massive depression and had anxiety all the time. And I had um, NFTs at varying prices. But I think um, after, you know, growing up, maturing, going to therapy, reading stoicism and, and, and various philosophies, uh, I've got to this point where now it's like, okay, I, I understand very much the difference between what's in my control and what's not. And I uh, largely try not to let things outside my control uh, negatively impact my life. Mm-hmm. that's a very useful skill to have in this space i think absolutely absolutely you wrote a thing about infinite regret once Ooh, that was good yeah that was really good we shared that i think that this was this was pre the tinder open discord tinder talk we shared it amongst ourselves and mm-hmm. dinner chat and had long conversations about that T- tell me how you where did that like why did you start why did you write that what 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 gave you that yeah it I mean, a ton of it was inspired by Stoicism, and I even quote Seneca and I think a couple other, maybe Marcus Aurelius and one other person, philosopher in there. Uh, It was basically just this thinking that uh, I and everyone in the space basically feels 
how difficult and, and how difficult it is to get things right. Like it really like, to time the top and the bottom is basically effectively it it is impossible, effectively impossible. And so what ends up happening is that you just end up regretting. Like you sell something and then it goes up in price, and you're just constantly looking at it, going, "Oh, why didn't I just hold on for like another hour, another week, another month? Um, I could have got so much more." Um, or if you don't sell it and it goes down in price, then you're like, well, why didn't I sell? Why didn't I go back? Why did I decide? To? And and the reality is that it's it's almost it, it is basically impossible to get it right all the time. And there's just going to be so many instances, effectively an infinite amount or a never-ending amount, where uh, you tend to have this regret and this mindset of, oh, if only I did this, or I wish I did something differently. And and I was feeling that way myself, and I was. You know, thinking about various situations where I wished I had done things differently, whether it was taking profits when things were higher or um, not selling things so early, and uh, basically was kind of struggling a little bit of, about it a little bit myself. And I actually wrote a post in the Zen Academy Discord because we have like a, a mental health or mistakes channel. I can't remember what we had back uh, back when I wrote it. And it sort of resonated well with just like the community in there and I shared it on Twitter and then it resonated well with that. And I was like, well, okay, it seems like I'm, I'm hitting some sort of nerve here and uh, it, it might make sense sort of you know, pull on this string some more and see, you know, just dig deeper and see where these thoughts lead and try and articulate it and write it down. Uh, and that is where the infinite regret post came from. And uh, yeah, for, for sure, it's the, the thing that I've written that has been uh, – sort of shared the most, I would say, or spoken about the most. Most people seem to resonate with it on one level or another. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It it really, it kind of impacted me. You know, I'm not going to say I'm a good poker player. <laughs> I played a lot of poker. <laughs> I'm a break-even hmm. player. I look at it as like, I've always kind of looked at poker as like... It's better than most people, if you break even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, but I... I mean, you're getting out with the fun, so... I guess, something like that, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I've always kind of enjoyed playing these games and I always had that, you know, when you walk off, when you walk off of a table as a loser, you're, you're replaying those moments like, oh, I should have, I would have, I could have, you know, and these ways of, of doing that. And that was one of the moments where one of the things about when I started getting into maybe doing a little bit more trading a little bit later on, I mean, when I was uh, first getting into kind of like how to move coins around and stuff, uh, like thinking about, oh, why did I sell my uni there? Why didn't I, why didn't I hold it? Or, mm. you know, this kind of shit. And so whenever I got into the, my next phase of how I was doing stuff, like I kind of, I was already kind of a little bit aware of those feelings inside of me saying like, you know, Hey, it's cool. Don't, you don't go back and look at that. You know, like once it's gone, yeah. it's gone. Don't think about it. It's over. And when you wrote that post, like it really hit me. I was like, Oh yeah, totally. I totally have gone through all of this shit. And I feel really great that somebody else is putting these out there in, mm. in a really well articulated way. You're good at that. You're really good at articulating mm. what you're thinking about. Maybe you're not, but it seems like it. Maybe it takes you a long time to go to it to get there, but I don't know. How do you feel about that? I think, yeah, I think it it took me really ever since I was like, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, when I first beca started becoming aware of like thoughts and emotions and like, you know, growing up and being turning from a kid to like an, a, a teenager and a, a real human with an understanding of, of emotions and, and thoughts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, 
I always felt like I had all these words inside me that I wanted to articulate and communicate and I could never find the right way to do it. But I would try. I had like I had journals and blogs and I would try and talk to people. And honestly, it was it took twenty years <laughs> before I feel like I got to a point now where I'm I'm good at articulating uh how I feel, how I think and can I think do so in a way that other people can understand and relate to them. And yeah, it's it's really been 20 years of kind of trying to figure out how to do that and struggling with not being able to do that. Cause it's really, uh, this, it, it had caused me a lot of sort of anxiety, depression, all sorts of things, loneliness, I think where I felt like I have all these thoughts and feelings and I can't communicate them effectively and I feel alone. And so it, it was some, it's something that's been on my mind for a very long time about like how to talk about things basically and how to communicate and, and how to share my thoughts. And then, uh, yeah, just like a lot of time thinking about it, practicing it, trying to write, eventually got to a point where now I, I can write in a way that sort of resonates with other humans, I think. And, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful that I've I've got to this point because it's it's helpful to me and I think it's helpful to others as well to to hear that you know people are going through similar things and uh, yeah, it, it was not some overnight thing, but it's uh, it, it's been a long time, um, not like intentionally working towards it, but just sort of struggling towards it. I would say struggling toward <laughs> God, struggling towards it is is an interesting way to put it, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, why? because theoretically you're always thinking struggle, 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 but ultimately you end up building a skill set that you don't even know will turn out to be a good one, but basically altering the complete career of yours. But still, while going through it, you're struggling, but ultimately you're sort of like slowly building, succeeding with it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, that's exactly how it is, basically. That's, yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> it breaks it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you're pretty you're pretty vocal about the mental health in this space, this always on space. Like, is this due to you having issues with this or do you know, do people write you and talk to you about this or, I mean. Both. Uh, so I have had a lot of like struggles again with mental health over the, like basically up until a few years ago, uh, depression, anxiety, um, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, it is something that just like plagued my life for uh, close to 20 years. And it was only through you know, lots of therapy and then trying to find good therapists and trying different approaches, uh, time, just growing up and, and maturing, uh, reading and philosophy and all sorts of various things, um, antidepressants and trying to find what works, what doesn't work, uh, that I finally got to a point where I feel uh, really like, fairly stable and it's with all of that perspective that I think that now when I notice things sort of bubbling up in my mind where like I start to feel burnt out or I start to feel upset or anxious uh that's when I try to articulate it a to help myself and also just like ground myself and be like okay this is write it out and really almost logic my way through it. it it sort of makes it go away and, and that's kind of what led to the infinite regret post um but also realizing that well if i'm feeling things like this chances are a lot of other people are and i know that a lot of people are because 
a lot of people write to me, whether it's in replies to like public replies about what I write or just private DMs or emails or whatever. It's a lot of people like, thank you for saying that. I feel exactly the same way. It's good to know that someone else is feeling that way. And so that encourages me to sort of, you know, when I start to feel a certain way, just to share it and, and write about it, even though um, maybe my instinct might be to not do that or, uh, and, and I don't do it every single time, but it's just like, it's, it's encouraging to want to write about it when it helps me. And it, it seems like it helps others as well. Um, yeah. Did you go to school like college? Did I go to college? Yeah. Uh, so I, I went, I dropped out of university three times is, is basically the, the <laughs> long and short of it. So I started, uh, playing online poker. So that's all I did before this whole space. And so I started playing in my last year of high school. So I was 17. And then I went to university studying commerce to do a law degree. After like, you know, the, the first six months, one semester, uh, I was very much not into it. I was playing poker in my classes and very much wanted to just pursue poker and, and see how that went uh, to travel. And because I was making decent money, especially for a 17, 18 year old. So I did that. And then after six months, of a break, I said, all right, let me go back and just try this university thing. My mom really wanted me to go back and I you know, was still living at home. And I thought, you know, I'll give it another go and just see how it goes. Second time around, uh, literally 40 minutes in my first lecture, I, I said, all right, this is just not for me. It was like accounting 101 and they're teaching us how to use Microsoft Excel. And I was like, okay, this, I just, I know this is not it. I'm still into poker. Let me just go and properly focus on that. And then I did that for like, basically all I did for like 17 years, but about 10 years in, 10, 12 years in, so this would have been around um, around the same time as I found philosophy, maybe a little before that, so 2015 maybe. Uh, I was already kind of getting a bit burnt out and over poker and looking for what else to do, and I, I wasn't finding poker particularly fulfilling. Uh, so I said, all right, let me let me go back to university and, and do something that I want to do, and I, I went to study law, and I studied law for about 18 months. Um, but again, it started off actually. I was very excited by it and very, in, I was enjoying it a lot and finding it very interesting. But then over the course of the next uh, 12 to 18 months after starting, it, it became uh, just less interesting, less exciting. I didn't like, uh, like some of the, the models of education and the ways of learning. And uh, I realized, you know, if I'm feeling this way, you know, 12, 18 months in, uh, it's probably not right for me to, you know, finish a, a four year degree. And then, you know, go and work a job and, and just spend the rest of my life in something that just doesn't thrill and excite me. And uh, so I went back to poker and then um, was just sort of puttering along until NFTs and crypto came along. And now, uh, now here I am. So I, I yeah, technically dropped out three times, but um, the second time was <laughs> very brief that I was actually there. I was asking because um, I'm, I think like one of the things that, you know, some of us learn is pressure. Uh, during during college during oh, yes. university you know and we learn how like how to deal with certain things you know rightly or wrongly during college due to the pressures of getting grades finishing a test getting this taken care of you know this kind of getting the, friends getting friends this is another thing and having somebody that you can actually talk these things through you know is is part of it and that's one of the things that I was the reason I was asking if you'd gone to school was if you had learned that sort of tactic via school or was this something that you had picked up just due to your you know nature of who you are or you know this this kind of thing as well and pursuant to that like you're now that i know that you didn't go to college to learn that 
do you think that like your being on the road playing poker at an early age, were you just playing online or were you going and playing another like around? It was majority online, but I traveled a decent amount. Yeah. Uh, I'd say maybe like 90, 10. So, uh, 10% travel was still led me travel um, quite often, like a few times a year to different places around the world. And and during that, were you learning about pressure and other kinds of things? And were, was that getting you into the same level of of stress that you go through here in this in the NFT space? Or was that like something completely different because you thought of it differently? No, I think it, it was very much similar. And I think that there are a lot of parallels between playing poker professionally sports betting professionally, trading financial markets, stock markets, equities, currencies professionally, and the crypto and NFT space. Uh, so you deal with a lot of the same pressure and stress and the um, the feelings of making a lot of money, losing a lot of money, almost making a lot of money, almost not losing a lot of money, um, and uh, just things like that. So definitely a lot of the uh, experience I got playing really helped. Uh, navigate this space and like my early days of poker was very difficult and all over the place and then as I got more experience with it I, I you know became able to more easily handle the um the swings and, and not let it affect me as much and, and understand again what's in my control what's not in my control and to to focus my energies on, on what is in my control mm-hmm. the swings were, did you play more tournament or were you play more like cash game uh, I played I played PLO cash games, Pot Limit Omaha cash games, as like my bread and butter. But uh, I started out playing. I mean, I played everything basically across the board. I started out playing. Uh, I think Norman Holdem full ring cash, and then I went to Singos, and then I went to Heads Up, and then I went to um, Six Max Holdem cash, and then I tried Limit Holdem. I tried Start. I tried O Eight. I tried literally everything. I tried tournaments. I tried everything under the sun. And then I finally found and settled on Pot Limit Omaha because it was just the thing that I, I enjoyed the most. And at the time that I started playing it in 2008, I think it was maybe 2007, uh, maybe even 2009, uh, some, somewhere around then, it was still very early in the grand scheme of things. Uh, whereas Texas Hold'em was already getting a little more difficult and solved. And even though looking back, that was still very early there. But uh, anyway, that is what I played. Mm-hmm. So you do, you weren't really doing much more on the on the tournament side because I feel like that's when no. you're taking that test. You know what I mean? Like there's like yeah. you know that's mm-hmm. where you have that pressure of like being. To, it's amazing yeah. to me that the same dudes are always like, well, maybe not so much now, but like whenever I was paying closer attention to poker, the same people were always at the final tables at those tournaments. You know? Yeah, it's pretty wild. To not me. a coincidence. No, not <laughs> no. a coincidence. No, they were just better than everybody else. They, yeah, they were definitely not break-even players. Um, that is definitely not, <laughs> <laughs> that is not their mo. But yeah, um, like and so yeah, that was kind of what you know. That was kind of a, a tangent off on that on that whole thing. Did you like playing poker? Was it fun for you, or was it like a? Uh, I went through phases. It was definitely uh, fun and exciting for a lot of it, and then there were periods where it was just kind of a grind, and it was less fun and exciting. And I think it was, uh, yeah, I basically just went through phases. And it was, it was kind of a, a case of it depended how much time and effort I wanted to put into making it fun and exciting. Because I think if you're actively trying to improve at poker, um, there, there was always things that you could do and learn. And you could have conversations with your peers and friends about, oh, how would you play this hand? What would you do in this position? Look at cal- like um, analytics and, and, and software and, and analyze hands. And it was really fun trying to like, 
be competitive and try and come up with the best strategies. But then uh, there were periods of, you know, many, many months in a row sometimes, maybe even a year or two here and there, where I was like kind of just didn't feel like putting in the work and effort to constantly improve. And I was like, all right, I've got a decent strategy. I can make okay money just sort of playing, you know, 12 tables at, at short stacking or something like that. I'm just going to wake up, do that for a few hours as a grind, um, not really enjoy it. Sometimes even watch like a TV show on the side, just be very tuned out and clicking buttons. And then uh, it was like, I wouldn't say I enjoyed the, that part of it, but it was, again, it's like better than a lot of alternatives. Like I, I, I often think about what what's the comparison. It's like, you know, working a desk job, having a boss, having to meet deadlines and expectations and, you know, the ability to work at home in my pajamas and or travel and work at a laptop somewhere, all of those things are amazing. Um, but it did come with trade-offs where, like, I, I often missed, like, the, the social element. I would have liked to be around people a bit more and um, to interact and engage and, and do things like that. But, uh, I mean, long story short, uh, I enjoyed it overall, but uh, not all the time. Yeah. It's kind of how I felt about it whenever I was playing poker. Like, I was really excited to go play, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I mean... I had fun doing it and I enjoyed going and hanging out with the people, but I didn't really care that it was about the money. And that was where I was. That was like mm. the, the flaw with poker. <laughs> you know, for me, mm. it was like, <laughs> I just like hanging out with these people and this is really fun. And so in order to do that, this is what they do, you know, and then this gives us yeah. some sort of like weird competition in the, in the, in the setting as mm. well. You know, I would never want to sit at a poker table with my wife. I just wouldn't want to do that. I tried it one or once or twice and it just wasn't, wasn't the same thing because she just doesn't care about money, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like money just doesn't mean shit. So fuck it, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Um, and uh, yeah. Anyway, she also doesn't really care much about competition. It's a whole nother. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. That's like the whole thing of it to win it if you're in it. Yeah. Right. right. That's it. That's the point. You're not. Yeah. You know. But I had a friend who once said to me, he was like, "Well, you can, you know." You can shave a cat a bunch of times, but you can only skin it once. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so he would before we we played a few games in Houston back in the nineties, and he, this guy was called Seth, and Seth was the guy who said that. And I said, "Well, do you want to go play this game?" And he was like, "Is this a shaving game or is this a skinning game?" <laughs> those kind of thoughts were always like in my. I don't know. I, I liked the guys; they were pretty good guys. And he was like, "No, no fuck." <laughs> different players different players but yeah different style yeah. thing how do you how do you relate your poker playing you know whenever i asked it this how do you mm. relate your poker playing to your trading philosophy like how do you how do you view that are you looking at this as like you need to have a certain amount of multiples in your stack that allows you to do this you are willing to take losses on an x amount or i would say it's it's been highly subconscious all along the way i've never like intentionally sat down and said all right this is what my strategy is going to be it was more just like based on instincts and and gut feelings that i'd honed you know 15 17 years as a poker player when it came comes to like bankroll management risk management and all of that kind of stuff i think it just allowed me to have better natural instincts about you know when to sell nfts when to de-risk when to be like risk on and hold something for a while and yeah it just it was never a conscious thing but I, I i am certain that it it helped like that experience as a poker player helped like more than i can possibly imagine when it came to sort of like successfully trading nfts and, and being able to manage and handle and understand like bankroll management and risk management just sort of um 
yeah, interestingly, somewhat automatically without really putting too much thought into it. Have you ever really gone broke? As a poker player, yeah. Uh, definitely in the early days a couple of times was pretty pretty broke, had to borrow money from a friend on a couple of occasions and then, you know, played poker to sort of pay them back over the course of a few months. And um, it was, it's not fun. <laughs> it's very stressful. Uh, somewhat fortunately, it happened uh, when I was on the younger side, so like maybe 19, 20, 21, 22, early, very early 20s, um, where I sort of identified, okay, it's okay to take more risk now and be a little less serious and I have like very little in the way of responsibilities and, and all that kind of stuff. And then um, as I grew older and, and, and sort of needed to think more about the future and, and not going broke, that's when uh, I, yeah, basically stopped being as um, blasé and, and risk on and uh, practice better bankroll management and uh, didn't really go broke after... I don't know, 22 or something. And I was never like broke, broke. I was never homeless. I was never out on the street. I was always fortunate to, A, I, I mean, I come from a nice, um, my, my parents are amazing and very supportive, even if they didn't <laughs> fully understand poker at the end of the day, if I needed to, like I, I left home when I was, I think, 20-ish and, and I moved to a different city. But I knew that if I, I needed to, I could go back and, and live with them. Um, and I, I was fortunate to have friends in poker that I could borrow money from to sort of get back on my feet. So I was like, quote unquote, broke, but um, I could still put a roof over my head and food on the table. Would you say you're trading or investing in NFTs? Hello? Really? I, I think... Sorry. Last year would be a lot more, I would say, trading. Mm -hmm. uh, the, this year, I would say um, it's some sort of hybrid between investing and collecting. Okay. How? Well, I think when it comes to trading, it's a little more, in my mind, more intentional and more short-term short or long-term. But generally, when people say that they're trading, they're like daily buying things, selling things, mm -hmm. thinking about when they're going to sell it, when they buy it. They have like an idea in mind of, all right, I'm going to buy this and then, you know, sell a bunch when they go up or, or something like that. And uh, I just don't really have much time at all to do that these days. Occasionally, I'll still like degen YOLO into some random project and then maybe it goes well and I'll sell some and that's kind of like a trade that goes well. But uh, for the most part, um, I collect projects that collect NFTs rather from projects or from people or from artists or from creators that I enjoy collecting and I want to either support them and or collect their work because I like it and it makes me happy and I, I, I enjoy collecting and that's where art comes into play. And, and a lot of the time that is any sort of financial consideration is like secondary. It's like, okay, I'm happy to buy this. If it goes up, great. If it doesn't, also great. I'm happy to just pay this, whatever the amount is that I'm willing to pay um, to have this NFT, this piece of art that I can display and know that I'm supporting an artist. Um, and then in the investing side, it certainly... Um, that there are other times I'm buying NFTs where I'm like, okay, I have some amount of capital, some amount of ETH that I want to sort of allocate into NFTs. I'm very bullish on NFTs and ETH NFTs and uh, or, or Tezos NFTs, depending on you know where I'm. Or Solana, even um, Aptos. Cant I bought some Canto NFTs last week. Whatever the chain, like whatever capital I have, I'm like, all right, I I feel like I should 
I want to put more of it into NFTs. Um, and when that happens and I'm thinking about it from an investment lens, that's when I, I really think about the longer term landscape and I'm like, all right, what, what am I comfortable buying and holding and sort of just not having to worry too much about? Because when it comes to trading, you need to sort of look at announcements. You got to make sure the team is doing things. You got to make sure, you know, there's no FUD or no massive explosive thing that you might need to sell. Um, and when it comes to sort of investing for the longer term, I think those are the, the pieces that you can buy and just sort of kind of forget about and look back on in a year or two and be like, yeah, okay, you know, things are going along basically as expected and, and check back another two years and like, okay, now things have gone well because um, I identified four years ago that generative art is going to be big in five, ten years. And so I think when it comes to investing, I largely do that. I think about that as, I mean, generative art is by far, like by far the biggest genre and niche that I've sort of invested into. And then I would say like PFP slash membership projects is like secondary to that. And I don't really double in gaming or music or photography like there's so many areas to sort mm -hmm. of invest into um one of one art a little bit but just not as much i would say yeah when i invest it's, it's i i think it's really those those honestly just realistically generative art is the thing that i invest most heavily into and i'm most comfortable holding for, for years and years and years it's really interesting that you say that because i think when i at least when I, you first popped onto my my screen or like my twitter homepage in that sense you were doing a lot of these um floor project prices mm. and these were exactly like you said day-to-day -day updates and to me that it's much more to, uh, to trading and nowadays you're not doing it anymore sort of like shifting to the investing mindset it's interesting to to, to see how that played out especially then with like generative art and how, how that all got got bigger and is getting bigger even now yeah i mean yeah the, those floor stat updates i did for like basically six months last year and i was I was actively trading like every single day basically. And so it was really helpful to do both. And I really had, you know, I was all in in, in the day-to-day -day markets, whereas now uh, I'm much less so. So it's, it's less about that day-to-day trading. So you, you identified, so have you been like collecting art for a long time or was this a new found love? This is a new thing. A new thing. Yeah. I, so the second NFT I ever bought was uh, I minted an art blocks piece because I, I was fortunate that you know, the friends that got me into this space was in a group chat with them and there was an art blocks project that was open for minting and they said, hey, go, you know, check this out. Um, this is something that's open for minting. And this was at a time where I didn't know how at all to find a project that was open for minting. Yeah. And uh, they basically said, I, you could probably, I, I, you know, based on how other stuff on Uplux is going, you can probably sell this for like three to four X in a few months time. And I was like, Oh, that sounds good to me. Like, <laughs> I'll trust you. I don't know what I'm doing. Love and I, 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 mm -hmm. I, I, I bought, I minted some, I think it was, um, I think it was aerial view or hieroglyphs. Either way, it was a collection that, uh, I, I like, but did not, <laughs> you know, sell out instantly. It did not multiply in, in floor price. I mean, maybe it did after a few months. But like for, there were like one or two months where like it actually went down. It was below mint. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe you know, I shouldn't have just blindly listened to my friend. I should have done some more research. But like I became aware of generative art then and then just sort of had one eye on art blocks because I had joined the Discord and then saw some other projects coming up. And then over the course of, you know, in the next few months, I started, uh, I was like buying with the intent to sort of flip and make a profit, um, basically trading. But then each time I would like just look into the art and hear from the artists, talk to the other collectors more and more. And then I got sucked into this world and eventually fell in love with everything to do with it. And, and then it would be like, well, okay, so I would mint two and maybe I would have sold both. Now I was like, well, I want to sell one, but I want to keep one because I really like this. 
And as time has gone on, it's just been more about just buying to collect and hold and not flip instantly. Maybe, you know, if things go mani- uh, manic, then eventually I will sell. But largely it's, um, yeah, this whole appreciation and love for art is, is a, a very new thing. Um, I've always liked it, but I've never like collected it or fully appreciated it until NFTs. It's funny how many people go through this cycle, especially I think yeah. generative art, where you're like in the beginning, oh my god, this looks cool, but I mean, I can like two eggs, three eggs, and then you're just like, I can't mm-hmm. turn down it, yeah. yeah, you can't turn <laughs> it down, and then you just like through exposure, you're looking at it and like, damn, this is good, damn, this is good, and then you're just like buying, and then you don't even want to sell it anymore. Um, it's, yep, it's yep, a crazy way to to get to know art, to to appreciate art, and uh, it's really interesting. I think it's fascinating to watch people go through this. Like, honestly, mm-hmm. I think it's a really fascinating thing to see so many people get really interested. Now, I mean, uh, my collection's crazy. It's it's tons and tons and tons of shit. And there's no reason for it, you know, for a lot of it. But that's just because I've, I'm really interested in supporting the people who are doing this and seeing, like, what's going to happen next. All the time, I'm always just like, let's see what happens next. You know, fuck it. I'll throw a, a buck or two at a guy. That sounds great. You know, let's just see what happens next. But, like, I think it's a different view on how art itself, you know, works like, like the idea that we're interested in this thing. That's kind of like a lottery, you know, like that maybe most collections, like, let's be fair here. You know, like most collections don't need to be a thousand big, you know, because there's Mm -hmm. maybe five or six out of them that are actually really good. The rest of those 990, you know, five of them suck. Or are okay, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're not really that thing that's like, oh shit, that's a, that's a shining Mm. light on this, on this thing, Mm. you know? And so when, when I first got into it, like, I thought, what a strange mechanic, you know, that this is what (laughs) I'm doing, like that, that I'm not actually finding something that an artist is doing, you know, but like that the artist is put in there and I'm get and I'm not even really a part, it's kind of performative in some way, I guess, but like, that's not really the... Weird question. When did loot boxes first appear in video games? Ooh, good question. Mm. Because for me, they were always there. So, I mean, I didn't play like Counter-Strike or anything like that. Or I don't know. Yeah, what like 20, in my head is like 2010, 2012, maybe. I mean, for, for me, it was like playing FIFA, FIFA and then just like get, getting the packs and then also just like gambling in, in that way. And I think mm. like that's some sort of thing where if you are like grown up yeah. in, the, in, in, the, in the early 2000s, and you're exposed to that and, 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 and you're used to it and you like it because you see your friends getting like a good pull, whatever that may be in whatever game. Mm. And, and, and it sort of is encapsulated in this long form generative art aspect. And I think that's also a reason why it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fun way well, to, you know, to collect. There was a game called Monster Rancher that was a PlayStation game. And you could put your CDs, your music CDs mm-hmm. in it and it would, get, it would spawn a monster from some sort of something mm. that's on that CD, it would spawn the same monster. So like th- we started learning that like this this game would give, it's like a Pokemon Me Too game, you know, this uh-huh. game was. But you would like spawn monsters by putting in CDs and getting these different monsters. So this is mm. kind of like that that same concept, but it's not really the loot box, but it's like a, here's a, you're gonna use this thing and see what happens next, mm. you know? Like, I don't know, it's, a, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's a good idea to think about that, that, that loot box way of, coming across like this is going to be rare or not you know? i mean that's like a whole nother discussion like rarity as a concept and how that influences people or how that shouldn't influence people yeah 
well how do you yeah. think about rarity especially given the fact that you're coming more from the I mean, not, not only, but have like a large stake in the PFP ecosystem. And for me in the PFP ecosystem, like rarity plays a much more important role. Whereas mm. in gen art, having the number one rare piece, quote unquote, does not mean that it's the best or the highly, highly, most highly coveted in that sense. Yeah. When it comes to generative art, I virtually don't think about rarity at all. Uh, Occasionally, I will look at sort of the rare color palettes and think that it. So something that um, I think it was Tyler Hobbs said on an interview once is that when it comes to creating an algorithm for generative art, you want sort of the quote unquote best palettes to be the most common ones or the best traits to be the most common ones so that the most yeah. people can get them. Yeah. And if you make like the quote unquote best traits, the rare ones, then oh, the ones that look the best, the rare ones, well then very few people out of a, a long form collection actually have the things that they, they look the best. So uh, that I think makes a ton of sense. And I think that, so I, I, I don't often look at rarity much at all when it comes to generative art. Um, and I just buy what I like and what looks good. And um Occasionally, if I if I mint something that's really got a rare trait, uh, I'll be happy because I can sell it and then go buy off the floor two or three that uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I like even more. Solid strategy. When it comes to PFP projects, I think people place a lot more weight. And like I think a lot of people share that sentiment for generative art. With PFPs, a lot of people place more value. And because they're, they're, they've got that whole collectible nature and there are people that really like collecting rare items and uh, it's a lot more evident in and it's also like when you have a collection of 10k for like a pfp project versus a thousand or even 500 or 100 for generative art um it's a lot more special to have like a something that's like there's only eight of them in 10,000 versus you know eight of them in 1,000 eight of them or one of them in 100 so it just makes rarity a little more important in pfp projects now i never again don't particularly care about it and uh I will, if I get a really rare one, usually sell it and then buy some floors. I think that uh, usually the, the best strategy is to either buy floors or buy the very, very rare ones. Uh, the thing with more rare NFTs in a PFP collection or any collection is that they become even less liquid or like less likely to find a buyer at that price um, in an already fairly um, illiquid market or, or one where there's not a lot of liquidity or a lot of um, volume necessarily. So uh, I don't think about it too much. Uh, if I get a rare one, I'm usually pretty happy to sell it and then and accumulate some floor ones that maybe I think look nice. That's interesting. Of all of your, of your entire collection, if you had to keep just one piece, what would that one piece hmm. be? A tough question. Such a tough collection. Uh, tough, such a tough question. It would probably be my ape, my PFP ape, I uh -huh. think, uh -huh. uh, just because I've built such a brand and identity around it. But uh, maybe not because you know, in a few months we'll be launching a Zen Academy PFP, and it's like I'm definitely going to be switching to that then. So uh, you would hold. I don't know. You maybe would, my Fidenza. Okay, I was about to say you would hold an ape over a Fidenza. <laughs> that was my, that was actually my real next question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's. I see my ape every day. Everyone sees my ape. Everyone knows me by my ape. It's like yeah. tied to my brand and sure. personal identity to a certain extent. Whereas uh, my Fidenza, I, I really like it, but I don't look at it every day. I don't have it displayed anywhere. Maybe if I had it printed and I just stayed on my wall, I would, I would keep it. But why don't um, you? Yeah, why, do, yeah. why not? Uh, be, 
Well, just because uh, we're really jumping around. Like, so we're going to move back to Australia permanently in, in a year or so, but we're currently living in Munich. We're moving to Dubai soon. And it's expensive to get, you know, a, a Fidenza high-quality print and then signed and, and uh, by, by Tyler, which I would want, and then framed with, like, high-quality museum glass and then shipped to one location, let alone having to worry about then transporting it to another and then another. So I'm basically just waiting till we have our forever home in Australia, and then I'm going to get um, it printed and sent out and, and hung up. Mm-hmm. So if you had to keep... So this is why, actually, these are good for you. This is why NFTs is good for you, because you, you don't have exactly, to... Exactly, yeah. You don't have to have the physical. A hundred percent, yeah. It's great for people that travel. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, do you feel like you're... Actually, let's back that off, not feel... Do you, is your PFP collection, does it have more value than your generative art collection from a monetary perspective? No, definitely not. So like your generative yeah. art collection is much more valuable. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. What's the most- Even now, <laughs> in the depths of a bear market, um, when, yeah, even when generative art like had tanked like the most, I think in like maybe February, March, January, February, March this year, um, the PFP market was pumping and generative art was tanking. I still think even then generative art would have been a larger, maybe larger percentage because uh, I, I really have just gone very, very heavily into um, art blocks specifically. And then starting in, I think, December last year, I started collecting on uh, FX hash as well. And uh, it's just the thing that I have when it comes to NFTs, the things that I have the most conviction in is, is generative art. So I'm happy to allocate and have the highest percentage of my portfolio in them. Do you have a full set, AB curated full set? No, it's, it's a sore point. <laughs> I'm, is I'm, it? I'm it's getting, also... not getting one when I, when I could have during the benchmark. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a weird thing to think about though. How much is the, would be the floor of that? Like ringers, like do you have a ringers? I think that's probably the. No, I don't. Okay, it's probably around five, four or five hundred ETH at this point. Whoa! Um, really? For a full set. I mean, it's a start. I think so because Fidenza is like ninety, I don't know, ninety or hundred. Elevated deconstruction is the big one. That's the bottleneck. There's only two hundred of them, and they were like thirty to forty ETH, but now they're like a hundred ETH, and I think there's only two listed. Last I checked, one at a hundred, one at three hundred ETH. Uh, so just like and ringers are probably like sixty or seventy. So just between Fidenza ringers and elevated deconstruction, you're looking at like two hundred and fifty ETH plus. Uh, add a archetype in there at twenty to thirty. A unigrids at twenty. You get to three hundred, and then there's like you know fifty other collections that are like between one and five ETH, one and ten ETH, even anticyclones up there. And uh, I would say 500 is probably a reasonable guess. You need to find the ones that you actually like if you're spending that money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Wow, holy shit. I, you know what? I got to admit my ignorance there. I had no idea that it would... I, I, just, I guess I, I just didn't think it through. I, I, th- I think Arplogs recently did like a post or like a blog article basically interviewing a few people who did it and, and reading that and then I saw like who these collectors are and I was like, that's not a lot of them. And, and then I sort of like mm-hmm. realized like, Okay, that might actually be a lot of money, but uh, also didn't 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 bother to look up the number. But yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. But valued. I mean, I can totally see it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you know we had this conversation about nostalgia once, where we were saying you know the the things that are important to us or to to one group 
are not important to another group based on when they enter into a specific thing, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I, we were we were actually discussing rap um, when we were discussing mm-hmm. this, but we can we can move this into generative art or art in general, like this kind of thing. Because like, if you got into the P, if you got into the PFP world in the punk days and the you know crypto kitties days, and you were in, and you were there, everything after that is shit, right? Because those were the things that you were interested in, right? But if you got into it at Bored Apes, everything before it doesn't really matter because the ape was really the, you know, that's your pinnacle of your collection, right? So that's it depends. the height. You're going to hold it higher than everything else. Most I, I'm, I'm not sure. No? I think I think some people would maybe buy an ape, like the ape, but think of basically using it as a utility to get like to the historical values of like, I have this ape right now, but maybe I'll, I get a punk because I have like to a higher Cultural or historical significance. I think more, but I'm, it's more about like the things that were at the same time that the ape came out. You know. What oh, I okay. Mean? Yeah. Sure. You sure. know, like that's what I'm saying. Like that's sure. that's what you're nostalgia for. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're nostalgic for that thing, for that era, mm-hmm. the stuff that came out in that. It's like what you know, like the FX hash beta tokens, for example. Like, mm-hmm. like if we if we think about them, like it. I got into FX hash at the time whenever it began. You know, you got into it when it began. And, yeah. like, you know, Roy, you as well. You were in it when it, you know, basically when it started. You were maybe a couple of weeks late, right? So it, we have a different view on those tokens. Even some of the, the, you know, the ones that are maybe not worth as much from a value perspective, but from our own personal nostalgia, there are certain things I really dig that mm-hmm. I look at and I'm like, that's really awesome and I'm never going to get rid of it. It doesn't matter that it doesn't mm-hmm. have any, you know, value to it. I, I don't know. I don't know where the hell we were going with that. I was just <laughs> thinking about like the nostalgia of like why why the value of that project is so but, high. But but I think the, like I think going back to the topic how we got this started, uh, the R blocks curated series yeah. is not even a, a point of like where you if you were there or if, or if you were not. It's much rather a starting point to the whole generative art thing in that sense, where it is the the first really bigger collection in that mm-hmm. sense where you have like a lot <laughs> yeah. of people coming in and maybe a- a- agreeing to that this is something special yeah um i mean without our blocks also fx, FX hash wouldn't be there in, in that kind of For way sure. so like there you were mm-hmm. the, the, the true first ones to do it so or not i don't know the first big ones i don't know yeah they were the ones that really made it go uh, would you if you had the opportunity Roy, if you had the money right now would you do it Get a book set. Yeah. Uh. I, hmm, it's hard to say. I I, I would. I, I'll say probably yes. I I would. Kind of like want to hope for it to come back down again a little bit because some of the prices have shot up just in the last two weeks. Down. There's been a lot of upward price momentum, so I generally don't like to buy when things are pumping. Um, but you know maybe sometimes they just keep going up and then and then you miss the boat. So uh, I would love to have a full set. And I think one day I will, and it will probably come because I'll, I just have to sell other things basically to justify it and, and re- reshuffle and reallocate my portfolio a little bit. Uh, but yeah, definitely on my wish list one day to put together a full set. What would you do with it if you had it? What's I the, would what's the end display it somewhere. Yeah, but where? Well, I mean, digital galleries, virtual galleries, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot more room to display them as time goes on. And then uh, probably various iterations of it in my house, maybe like 
I would pick some of my favorite pieces and, and have them and then maybe just have like a much smaller collage created of, of the entire set and, and play somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this, I see, this is the thing I'm, I'm, all, I'm struggling with it all the time. Like, what's the point of me collecting these crazy, like having this thing? Like, what's the point? Am I trying to personal satisfaction? Is it, that's what it is, right? Yeah, it's ultimately, just for example, I want to collect, um, like a, a, a token of each of all of our art Basel iterations that we did for this year. So like Hong Kong, Basel, mm -hmm. Paris, and then what we will do in uh, Miami. For for late for for later in life to look back and yes, I mean it's a, nostalgic about yeah maybe maybe that also to maybe show it off I don't know mm -hmm. but uh, mostly I think personal satisfaction and uh, I think it's just a memory in that sense and mm -hmm. uh, uh, people pay a crazy amount of money for memories oh I uh, dude I'm fucking aware <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so aware I, I I absolutely understand I just constantly question it you know it's like. I have a nutso real life art collection and I have a bunch of like, you know, digital art um, as well. And like, I think about this a lot. It's like, I love that I have that stuff. I would never think about selling mm -hmm. a, a lot of stuff. But when it comes to some of my NFTs, I would think about selling it if somebody offered me the right amount of money. Uh, yes, same. But uh, not every one of those. Yeah, that's true. Not every one. I wouldn't. There's a few things I would never sell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny idea. Do you have something that you would never sell? I say my Fidenza generally is something I, I never want to sell. I, I minted it and it is, yeah, just, it's just a special piece of generative art, special piece yeah. of art, special thing that uh, unless I like really, really have to, um i'm not gonna sell it yeah i think that was my also like when i first got into it um like fidenzas i think probably as yes, everybody i think getting into it like actually wow. reading your newsletters then like understanding what our was and being pissed that i couldn't afford it anymore mm. and then just trying to get pfps yeah yeah I, I remember showing my wife the fidenza and like talking about it like maybe we should spend a little bit of eth on one of these and then just deciding not to <laughs> for, <laughs> for whatever reason, just like, eh, well, no, nah, fuck it. Not, we're not going to do that. And then I heard about it like about a month later that it had, you know, just went stupid and gone completely out of touch for, for me yeah. at that point. It's funny. Some of the guys in the, one of the guys in the, in the tender group, their whole move was to trade their way into a Fidenza from FX mm -hmm. and stuff. And he did it. Really? Who? Yeah. I, I, it's a, I'd let him tell you. Okay, okay, I'll find but, out. I find out. Yeah, it's not hard. Um, but he, <laughs> that was his whole thing. He wanted to trade into one, and he and he did. He worked his way all the way through it. I mean, it was amazing. I watched it happen, and I thought, "Fuck, that's crazy." That's dedication. <laughs> that was dedication. And but it's also so cool that you can do that with FX Ash. in less than a year. Damn. Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, there were some gardens involved in that. You know. Ah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Hey, Roy, this has been really good. I'm really glad to have you on. Is there anything that I'm you glad to be here? This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna have to kind of start wrapping it up. So I wanted to ask you: Is there anything you wanted to ask us? Cool. Um, what are you excited for in this space? Whether it's in respect to generative art or something else, what's what sort of like? What are you looking forward to in the next uh, six to twelve months? Generative art. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, but but truth to be told. Um, having just been in Paris for Art Basel, like the booth, the people, 
people start to understand it. People start to understand it much more than basically going beyond the NFT to basically go say, hey, this is art. And the NFT, with like the sti- all of the stigmatization that it has, is slowly disappearing, especially in a generative art context and seeing. I mean, we, we had like an interactive piece and there was just like little children like jumping around, playing with it and just being full of joy and just like looking at it. And you, you, after seeing this and like a few other things, you can't, can't really tell me that like the new generation won't like understand it as, as, as we do or as some other people might not, 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 not do. So that's really what I am most, most excited about um, and have like the utmost conviction in, in all of this space. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in that same boat. I, I like generative art a lot. I like the old stuff. I like the new stuff. I like how we're getting at it. I, in the next year, we're going to be doing a series of things here that involve a lot of generative as, uh, aspects, plotter plotter things. Oh, and, plotters. Yeah, plotters are so plotters cool. Plotters are really cool. Plotter Twitter is really fun to look at. And this kind of stuff. But yeah, that's a big thing. And also like real world use cases of NFTs. Like my friends in Austin are working on a, you know, a system that is a tied soul bound NFT. That's, you know, your, your soul bound NFT. These are like your keys for your car and to run your shit as a an NFT and you can trade it. It's really fascinating what they're working on. And so <laughs> like, I'm learning a lot of different things about how, what we can do with this. Anyway. Yeah. What are you most excited for? Hmm. I'm excited for more adoption and onboarding. I think we're seeing that like with Reddit NFTs and mm-hmm. Starbucks announcing their uh, Odyssey program, even their loyalty to NFT, loyalty rewards to NFTs. And I think that's going to, um, yeah, just get a lot more genuine interest in this whole space, which I think we need because it's otherwise just the same. <laughs> 10,000 of us, 20,000 of us just <laughs> selling it back and forth to each other. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. No, there's also like 1,000 computers selling to each other directly. Yeah, exactly. They're directly <laughs> That's very true. Hey, Roy, thanks a lot for being on. We really appreciate it. Yes. Uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. And um, before we go, I just want to say, if you've been listening to this on keithfm.com, the way we survive is via donations. We've got a nice little yellow <laughs> donate button. You can click on that and input your PayPal information and PayPal us a little bit. And... If you have a Tez wallet and you want to donate to the show via Tez or tokens from FX Hash or Object or anywhere else, Ozzy, good old Ozzy, was nice <laughs> enough to donate. I don't like podcasts.tez. And that's our um, reverse lookup so that you can send us shit directly. And we'll. we'll I mean, I like it. this podcast. <laughs> this one's all right. His, Seneca's got an okay one too. No, I yeah, I mean that. That was basically. I don't know the days because uh, like of the time frame, but I, I listened to everyone in the beginning. Like it was. <laughs> no, it was really good and like also. Awesome. Like, I appreciate it. I mean, you're a good content creator. I mean, and there's a reason. I don't know how many people follow you nowadays. Three hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand. But there's a reason. too many. Too many. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason for it. So. Um, uh-huh. Well, hey, Roy, thanks so much. We appreciate it. We appreciate your time. We know you're a busy man. And, uh, yeah, this is us going away. Nice. Yeah, yeah this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Easy.